was abrupt. Thanks so much again for joining us. I would introduce myself, but I did it already. Uh, I don't know who let me do announcements, but it was 15 minutes long, so that's not supposed to happen, which means I'm probably going to have to preach fast, so if you guys can listen quick, that's great. Uh, one more announcement that we missed. Uh, Pastor Matt is going to be sending out prayer requests while he is on his two different trips, and so there's a sign-up sheet out there by the Welcome Center if you want to keep up to date and continue to be praying for him. We'd love to have you sign up for that. I'm sure we'll put it in the newsletter. If you're not signed up for the newsletter, I would encourage you to do that. I get it every week and see things that I didn't know were happening. And so it's great. It's awesome. It keeps everyone informed and up to date. So um, we have about three weeks left in our series called Like No Other. Uh, We've been exploring the Gospel of John, the seven I am statements and seven signs that John recorded ultimately to make the point that Jesus is a man like no other because he is both God and man. John tells us that the reason he wrote these signs and these I am statements is that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing we might have abundant life on earth right now and eternal life in the future. Last Sunday, Kent covered the final sign of Lazarus' resurrection. Um, And today, we're going to cover the I Am statement that's really embedded in that passage. Normally, when I preach the I Am statements, I have to spend a lot of time covering the context because it impacts the statement. Last week, Kent covered the context beautifully, so we're just going to focus on the I Am statement and think about the implications that this I Am statement, I Am the resurrection and the life, what are the implications that this has on our life? I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, the I Am statements are a description about Jesus that becomes a prescription for the way we live our lives. I thought that was super helpful, right? It's a description about Jesus, but that description about Jesus, if we believe it's true, should give us some prescription for the way that we live in light of that. So today, we're going to get really prescriptive about how we should live in light of Jesus being both the resurrection and the life. Sound good? Awesome. All right, let's pray, and then we'll hop into it. Father, we are so grateful, yet again, um, for this opportunity to worship you, to set aside everything else that's happening and to set our minds on your truth. Um, God, many of us in this room are followers of you. We've bent the knee to your kingship, your lordship in our life, and we want to be reminded of what it looks like to live as your son and your daughter. We want the Holy Spirit to convict us and challenge us in the ways in which we're not living in light of those truths. Others of us in the room are just exploring your claims, Is it possible that this man who lived 2,000 years ago is actually the Son of God and actually offers abundant, eternal life? And others of us just got drugged here by a friend or a family member, and we don't even want to be here. And God, I pray that even in that motivation for being here, that you would do something supernatural, that you would speak truth in your power, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, So like I said, Kit knocked it out of the park last week. If you missed it, love for you to go back and check it out. I do need to give just a really quick, short recap 
for some very slight context. So, the I am statement is embedded in one of Christ's closest friends being sick, about to die. And the text seems to indicate that Jesus was close in relationship and proximity, that he could have done something about it. Seems to indicate that he could have done something about it and he chose not to do something about it. And after his friend passes away, he returns to the spot where the death has happened to mourn the loss of his friend. As he's returning, one of the man's sisters comes to Jesus in the midst of her grief and her pain. And ultimately, she says, why didn't you do something? I know you could have done something. I've, I've, I've seen it. I've heard the stories. I know the power that you have. Why didn't you do something? And this is Jesus' response to this seemingly great question from somebody who knows Jesus, loves Jesus, understands what he's capable of. She comes to him in her grief and in her tears and in her sorrow and in her pain. Why didn't you do something? And Jesus' response to her is a vague theological term. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Can be... Can I be frank with you guys this morning? This kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Anybody else? His, one of his closest friends has just lost her brother. She comes to him in sorrow and in grief and in pain, and he responds to her with a theological phrase. If I pastored you guys this way, you'd fire me. If you came to me in the midst of your grief and your pain and your loss, and I said, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Right? Like, you would be like, what do we pay you for? This is not what I came here for. So there's tension here, right? And I, I think I'm, I'm going to give Jesus a pass in this situation. <laughs> I know, very great, gracious of me, right? Because a few minutes later, he's going to weep with them. And then a few minutes after that, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So whatever he says before those two things happen, I have grace for it, right? But I think if we're really honest, this statement, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, can be a bit frustrating, especially for us, because we're reading it in the tension. Before we see the resurrection, before we see the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises, we're reading it in the midst of our sorrow and our pain. Many of you come here in the room today with difficulty and with pain, and, and you read on the, the pages of Scripture, I am the resurrection and the life. How are we supposed to interact with this? When a loved one dies, when we get an unexpected diagnosis, when our marriage is falling apart, when the pregnancy test comes back negative for seemingly the hundredth time, 
when we're crippled by anxiety, fear, and depression, when we're stuck in that addictive, habitual sin that we can't seem to get over, when we're watching a wayward child continually make life-harming decisions. Insert whatever your experience of death, sorrow, and pain is. We receive this truth in this tension of death and sorrow and pain all around us. If you're not currently experiencing death, sorrow, and pain, I can almost guarantee that you have recently or you will soon. We live in a world that is broken. And yet in the midst of that brokenness and pain, Jesus speaks seemingly a vague theological truth, but it is so much more profound and powerful. And it breathes life into us if we'll, if we'll accept it, if we'll believe it. So, also, while I'm sharing grievances, real quick, one more grievance. It seems to be contradictory. Let's read it real quick again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Which one is it? Are we never going to die or are we going to live even after we die? I'm just frustrated, all right? I'm just being honest with you this morning. Okay. So, let's look at the contradiction. Does it actually make sense? Let's look at the description. What does it mean? And then we'll get to the prescription. How do we live in light of it? You guys think I'm mad at Jesus this morning, don't you? (laughs) We're going to get to the good stuff. I just want you to feel that tension, right? This is Martha comes to him in the midst of her grief and her pain, and this is what he says to her. This is what he says to us in the midst of our grief and our pain. So he says, though you die, yet you will live. You will never die. I read so many commentaries, and everybody just like breezed past it like it's supposed to be some like obvious thing. And I'm staring at it like, can somebody tell me what this means? It took me until like Thursday for it to click in. But essentially, this is a two-part truth. Jesus is saying, I am both the resurrection and the life. And the resurrection means that though we die, we will live. But the life aspect of it is that we, he, he offers us a life where there, we don't have to fear death. Because at the, at the death comes resurrection. John is emphasizing two aspects of God's character in this passage, both life and resurrection. We will experience death, sorrow, and pain in this life. Yet if we live and believe in him, we can experience an abundant life in the midst of of our pain. It's the peace that passes understanding. It's the joy in the midst of sorrow. It's the hope for resurrection in the midst of death. Although on the surface it seems to be a contradiction, I think it's just truths held in tension. Theologians call this tension already not yet. We can experience aspects of the resurrection life now already, And yet there are certain aspects of the promises of God, of the promises of Jesus in our lives that we won't experience until his second coming. We hold these truths in tension, which is why we get really annoyed with Christians who just like slap the bumper stickers on the back, right? Like God is good all the time. It's like, no, like there's tension here. This is difficult. So not a contradiction, but definitely a tension. The I am statement here emphasizes the eternality of God's character. Remember when we talked about what I am means. It's, it's all about 
uh, God's character from beginning to end, that he was, is, and always will be resurrection and life. Let's, let's unpack those a little bit. First, life. The first two chapters of the Bible show us the type of life that God created us for. It's the Garden of Eden, right? Like this shows us God's intention for life that we are in perfect harmony with one another and with God and with His creation. There is no tears, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no death. Life as it was intended to be. God was, is, and always will be about that kind of life. But, unfortunately, because of us, He is also resurrection because the need for resurrection comes on the other side of Adam and Eve's sin, of their failure, of their decision to not trust God and ultimately to desire for themselves a different type of life. A type of life that, if we're honest, results not in life, but in death. See, apart from sin entering the world, Christ's statement would simply be, I am the life. But we got involved. Sin got involved. And because sin got involved, Jesus was, is, and always will be the resurrection and the life. Now, you might be thinking, because I was thinking, pushback time. If God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and death was not a part of his desire, then why did he allow it to happen in the first place? Fair question, right? Ultimately, I think it's because God is not only all-knowing and all-powerful, but God is all-loving. So he does not force Adam and Eve to trust him. He does not force them to obey him. He, he, he lays it all out for them. This is my design for life and creation. I invite you into it to, to live and to flourish in relationship with me and with one another and to cultivate creation in the way that I've designed it to be. Trust me, follow me, do what I say, and life will happen. One rule, don't eat of the knowledge of the, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Loving. It's very loving. He doesn't force them to do what he says. He gives them the option, and they choose, and we, along with them, choose something different. So, my main theme for this passage, we're going to repeat it over and over and over again, is that God chose life, we chose death, and God chose resurrection. How will, they, how will we then respond? God chooses life, we choose death, God chooses resurrection, and now we have an opportunity to respond to that. See, I said that the I am statements are about what God has always been. And you would say, well, resurrection, how can he always be about that resurrection if death doesn't enter until Genesis 3? Okay, he's all-knowing, which means that he created knowing that we were going to disobey him. Jesus created us knowing that his sacrificial death would be required for our redemption, forgiveness, and resurrection. This is the profound love of God. See, I think so often we think about the death, resurrection of Jesus as like some plan B, like, oh no, didn't know that was going to happen. We got to figure something out. No, God, in his grace and mercy and love, created us knowing that he would have to sacrifice his one and only son. Colossians 1 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, and rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed, Jesus existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is, was, and will always be about life and about resurrection. We make the choice to pursue death, destruction, sorrow, pain. Sin enters the world in the midst of God's design for life, and the rest of creation is about God's redemption plan to get us back to that point. How will we respond? What will we choose to do in light of this tension? Um, Okay, so I want to break this part of the message up into two parts. Number one, how do we live in light of Jesus being life here and now? And number two, what do we hope for in the future? Jesus is both life now, resurrection future. What, what do we, how do we walk in abundant life now? And what are we hoping for in our eternal life in the future? See, I think far too often we over-apply truths like this in the spiritual realm. We, think, we, we forget about how they apply to our everyday lives. Resurrection tends to be something we just hope for in the future rather than participate in our daily lives. Christian, this is not God's call on your life that you just sit in sorrow and pain and think about what's going to happen in the future. He calls us, he invites us to live into the resurrection now. This is what the church all about. In Winchester, as it is in heaven, we live into what we know is going to be true in the future. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, the work of salvation in its fullest sense is about whole human beings, not merely souls. About the present, not simply the future. About About what God does in and for us. So Jesus being the resurrection and the life has future implications, but it also has implications for our life today. It's this tension, already not yet. Are we living in light of Jesus being the resurrection today? Or are we just hoping and waiting for the future to come? Okay. Three main areas that we experience death in light of sin. First is physical. Everybody dies. We're on track with that. Second is spiritual. We're, we're dead spiritually. We need forgiveness of sins, and we need the Holy Spirit to give us victory over sin. Third is creation. Creation's dead because of sin. There are, there are implications of creation because of sin. So, let's break those three down first. Physical death is coming for all of us. It is the consequence of sin that none of us can escape in this life. It's undefeated. So, how do we 
live into the resurrection knowing that we are going to die on this earth. A couple implications I want to share. Number one, Christians never talk about this. Take care of your bodies. Your body is a gift from God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What you do with your body is a spiritual thing. We disconnect these two things. We, we're discipled by Plato more than we're discipled by the Bible sometimes. All right. What you do with your body matters. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual obedience to Jesus to exercise, to eat healthy, to rest, to pursue sexual purity, to refrain from addictions. Many of us, most of us in this culture today, we're very bad at taking care of ourselves because we're so busy. We fill our lives with stuff. And we can't hear from God, commune with God, take care of ourselves, and be good neighbors. Dallas Willard uh, is one of the leading voices in spiritual formation in our day. He says that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. What we do with our bodies matters, and far too often we ignore it. 1 Corinthians 10 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Now, here's my experience. When you, talk, when you start talking about physical bodies in the church, we're really good at pointing fingers at other people. Oftentimes we miss the blind spots in our own life. So like growing up, I grew up in a pretty conservative, you guys have heard me tell these stories, right? So oftentimes there would be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on both toes, okay? Can I step on one toe and you not get too offended so that I can go step on the other toe too? <laughs> All right, so when I grew up, there were very overweight pastors who loved to talk about how sinful alcohol was. Okay. Now, 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 my generation, we've pendulum swung, right? And a lot of us are, not me, I could already see how that was going to happen. A lot of us are young and healthy, and we work out, and we exercise, and we drink too much alcohol. So we're really good at, like, pointing fingers at people who don't, like, oh, that guy's all, he always talks about alcohol, but look at how much macaroni and cheese is on his plate. It's like, yeah, dude, you work out, but how many beers did you have last night? Okay, like, all right. Sorry. This is, uh, this is getting out of hand quick. Take care of your bodies. It is a spiritual discipline. It is a gift from God. Yes, it is decaying, but one day it will be resurrected. What we do with our physical bodies matters. Second, pray for healing. Later in this passage, Jesus is going to miraculously heal Lazarus. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit working through believers to heal many who are sick and dying. It is one of the great apologetics of the church when the doctors can't explain what happened. When the church gathers together and lays hands on those who are hurting and are sick, and we pray in faith and we expect God to show up. And we go back to the doctors and they've got no explanation for what happened. It's one of the great apologetics of the church. Scripture encourages church leaders to anoint sick and pray for healing. It is God's good pleasure to answer the prayers of his people. I've seen God do many miraculous things in my life just because we decided to ask him for it. 
others of you in this room are saying, yeah, but what about me? It doesn't happen all the time. He's in this tension we live in, this already not yet tension. Sometimes we pray for healing and it doesn't happen on this side of the second coming of Jesus. But resurrection is always coming. So, take care of your bodies. Pray for healing. Mourn with those who mourn. I gave Jesus a hard time for coming to Martha with a theological truth. But in a few minutes, he's going to break down and cry in anger over sin. Christians, we're called to hate the state of this fallen creation. Death, sorrow, and pain. We know that it's not God's ideal. We know, ultimately, that he's seeking to restore things back to the way they should be. We should be a people who comfort the hurting, who mourn with those who lament. But we don't mourn as people without hope. We mourn in this tension, knowing that there's a future hope, and we share our eternal hope with those who are suffering and don't yet know about the resurrection of Jesus. Take care of your bodies, pray for healing, mourn with those who mourn, and live with an eternal perspective. Death is, an ine- death is, death is inevitable, but it isn't the end. Jesus is both the resurrection and the life. As a pastor, I regularly interact with people who are not religious at all until someone they love dies. And then they start to think about eternity. And then they start to think about what's going on. And, and, and I just encourage you, death is coming for all of us. Don't start thinking about eternity when it happens. Start thinking about eternity now. As followers of Jesus, we should be regularly living and investing in the things that matter in eternity our future hope. Physical death is something we should not fear. This is what Paul says. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Paul's eternal perspective, he was untouchable. The Romans were doing everything they could. The, the uh, Romans and uh, the Pharisees, they were doing everything they could to shut him down. They're like, hey, stop preaching Jesus. We're going to put you in jail. He's like, fine. I'll like sing hymns and share the gospel with the soldiers that are guarding me. Like, fine, well, then we'll kill you. And he's like, okay, good, sweet, let's do that instead. That sounds better, right? If we live with this eternal perspective, we're untouchable. In the midst of sorrow and pain and difficulty, we focus on what's to come. We know the hope we have for the future. Paul writes this in Philippians, always be full of the joy of the Lord. I say it again, rejoice, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. God chose life. We chose death. God chooses resurrection. How will we respond? So we've got physical death, spiritual death. We are born with desires that lead us away from God's plan. Sin not only kills us physically, but it also kills us spiritually. But thanks be to God that Christ has purchased victory for us by faith, giving us the Spirit of God that allows us to have victory over sin and death. This is what Romans 6 says. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that 
sin might lose its power in our lives. Here's, here's my question. I talked about things that are true spiritually and whether or not they actually have impact in our lives. Many of us are followers of Jesus. We have been died. We have united ourselves with Christ's death. We've been crucified. Are we living as if sin no longer has power in our lives? Are we living into that truth here and now? Or are we just waiting for God to come back and, and fix everything? Now we have the opportunity to put sin to death in our life, to live into the resurrection of Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. Notice how all of this is focused on the resurrection. He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives to the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, practical implications. Do not let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to the sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have been given new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. And a shorter summary of the same truth, 1 Corinthians 15, For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let sin have victory in your life. Present yourselves to God. Die to your old self. Receive forgiveness, and new life. practice that I've been coming back to recently is the Lord's Prayer. It's such a good reminder of truths that we know to be true. I've been every morning praying, God, forgive me of my trespasses. And then listing them all out. We all know how many there are. And help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. And then Heaven knows I have a list of those people, right? So, Lord, forgive me and help me to forgive those and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Just that reminder every morning, God, there is going to, temptation will come today. And there is an evil one that is seeking to lead me down paths of destruction today. Every day, remind yourself of that and be on guard. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, set your mind on things that are above and allow God to transform you from the inside out. God chose life. We chose death. God chose resurrection. How will we respond? All right, I'm going to finish quick, I promise. Last one, natural death. Uh, Creation. Creation mourns the impact of sin on its being. Not only do our bodies and our souls feel the effects of sin and death, so does creation. Romans says that all creation groans in eager anticipation of Christ's return. Do we groan with it? Do we eagerly await a day when Christ will create a new heaven and a new earth? Scripture says that one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the water covers the sea. How we interact with God's creation matters. Do not disconnect your spiritual life from the physical world. Again, churches don't talk about this, right? 
Don't litter. Recycle. Pretty basic, right? It's a spiritual offering to God to take care of the creation that he has given us. Far too often, again, we're discipled by Plato. We disconnect ourselves from the, the world and the body that we live in. What we do on this planet matters. God chose life. We chose death. God chose resurrection. How will we respond? All right, so those are some general, really practical ways for us to live in response to the resurrection or live in response to Jesus being the life. But now, what are we hoping for in Jesus being the resurrection? This part's really short, I promise. First, natural death. At the second coming, Christ will put to death physical death. It's pun. It's good, right? He will put to death physical death once and for all. We read this earlier. We're going to read it again because it's so powerful. Revelation 21. Then John saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And he saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Lord, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All of these things are gone forever. This is the truth that we hold to in the midst of the tension of our broken world. This is what we hope for in great anticipation the end of death, sorrow, and pain once and for all. Jesus is, was, and will always be the resurrection and the life. We await a day when there is no more sorrow, crying, tears, pain. Spiritual. The new heaven and the new earth will be filled with people who have bowed the knee of allegiance to Jesus as King. There will be no more possibility for sin. This is what makes it different from the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was always opportunity for someone to decide not to follow God. In the new heaven and the new earth, it will be filled with people who have already submitted their life to allegiance to Jesus. There will be no sin for all of eternity. We will experience the return to the Garden of Eden life without the possibility of sin. God chose life. We chose death. God chose resurrection. How will we respond? All right, creation. Creation is going to be restored to its original intent. Uh, intent. No more tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes. Creation will no longer experience the pain of death and sin. Isaiah puts it this way. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, the little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Don't give me ideas. Somebody's going to bring snakes to the worship team next week. All right. 
Uh, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Jesus is, was, and will always be the resurrection and the life. My question, multiple questions for us this morning. Are we experiencing that life now? Are we living into the resurrection that God has provided for us? And if not, why? Most likely the answer is something that we're choosing. Something that we're giving our life to more than we're giving our life to Jesus. You want to experience abundant life? Submit your whole self to Jesus. Die to sin and live for God. Invest in what will last for eternity. And are we eagerly awaiting the culmination of Christ's resurrection? Death, sorrow, and pain will be no more. Sin and temptation will be no more. And creation will be restored to God's original intent. No matter what level of death, sorrow, or pain you have, are, or will experience sin, no matter what habitual sin you can't seem to break, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Victory, freedom, and peace are available for those who choose to walk in it with eager anticipation for Christ's return. God chose life. We chose death. God chose resurrection. How will we respond? Let's pray.